I invite you to take that Bible and open to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, we are already over halfway and we come to a, a very crucial, if not the most pivotal chapter in all of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, let me at least read uh, the opening eight verses and give you homework for this week to read over Daniel chapter 7 at least a couple of times. But follow along as I read in Daniel 7, starting at verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Let's bow and ask for his grace even today. Father, we love you and we give you praise to be able to read your word, to be able to study your word, to be able to interpret it, to be able to know the meaning of it. Thank you for that. Father, would you open hearts and eyes, Father, that we might see this glorious picture, frightening but glorious, because of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, would you um, give us that wisdom that we need this day to speak to every heart. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I mean, there, there is a, a man I was reading this week. His name is Rodney Stortz. And in one of his chapters on Daniel, he said, people, and I think this is true. He said, love the book of Daniel, but few venture, he said, into the last six chapters. He said, in Sunday school, we learned the stories of Daniel and the lion's den, certainly the handwriting on the wall, and about Daniel's friends thrown into the fiery furnace. But how many classes ventured across the line of chapters one through six into the mysteries of Daniel seven through 12? And he went on to say that I would venture to say that most Christians could not tell you what is contained in Daniel chapters 7 through 12. 
Do you? I, I, I thought that's a fair statement. How well do you, do I, do we as a church understand what is contained in 7 through 12? In fact, I would tell you, wouldn't say that it's wrong, a lot of expositors, few of those are left, would go through the opening six chapters and then they would be done. Because the first six chapters, as you understand, are narrative and it's Daniel in the lion's den, it's Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's the great statue, if you will, and all those things, but how many venture beyond that? I would say, beloved, that some people do not study the prophecies of chapters 7 through 12 because most scholars, or at least many scholars, can agree on the interpretation. And if those guys in the Hebrew and the Aramaic can't agree on the interpretation, then I think some would think, why try? But GCV, listen, I want you to put away your fears. And I want you to put away those fears of not understanding because of Daniel 7, verse 16. In fact, you can back up in 15 after he had the dream and the visions is for me in 7.15. Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those, it's an angel, who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known uh, to me the interpretation of these things. There you have it. The angel told Daniel about the dreams and the visions. And then Daniel, I want you to know, from verse 15 all the way down through 28, gave you the interpretation of that which will speak today. GCV, I would say that the God who writes history, you'll see this in seven, will one day conclude history. History doesn't just go on and on and on and on, and you die and go into the new heavens and earth. Certainly that's the final part, but there is an end of history. And here in Daniel 7, God is in sovereign control, you know I'll say that, over every nation and over every ruler, okay? The God who uh, writes it is going to conclude it. Now, some certainly doubt God's sovereignty today. They see the local, the international conflict. We see it daily. And mothers and fathers and grandparents are concerned for their children, concerned for their grandchildren. Uh, what will our world look like? I wrote at the beginning 10 years, but then I had to, I rewrote it. And I said, what will it look like in five years in fact, we could probably say, and I could say, we're not sure what it's going to look like in January, and we're certainly not sure in our own humanness what it will look like next November. And the question would be, is God still in control? Is he in control of our state? Is he in control of our world? Well, Daniel is going to declare, yes. Yes, indeed, that in spite of what you see, God is orchestrating all history, every molecule 
to the return of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John Walvoord, the eminent scholar, said the vision of Daniel 7 is the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events found anywhere in the Old Testament. I think he's right. You're not going to see a greater chapter in all of Scripture on prophecy than here in Daniel chapter 7. Now let me just clarify a few things for us as we build the framework here. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is not consecutive in the way it's packaged, okay? Daniel's vision in 7 through 12 takes place, if you could put this in your mind, at the same period as chapters 5 and 6, okay? So you say, what do I mean by that? Well, you saw it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So he's going to go back and give you this dream. Would you turn your page and look at chapter 8 of Daniel? He gives the timing there of the vision of the ram and the goat in 8.1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Look again over at chapter 9. He says there, in the first year of Darius, we just finished in chapter 6, the son of Ahasuerus, okay? Go over one more to chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. So what you need to do if you're thinking about how to read this is you take chapters 7 through 12 and lay them down over chapter 5 and 6. The prophetic chapters of 7 through 12 fit into the historical chronology of the narrative in chapters 1 through 6. One scholar, Towner, calls Daniel 7 the single most important chapter in the whole, whole book of Daniel. Now, you might not think that. Uh, it's okay, that could be argued, but he would say, here's the center point. Here's the high tension. Here's where everything is leading. It's chapter seven. Because chapter seven will give us a grand overview of human history all the way to the full arrival of the kingdom of God. Listen, I can tell you by scripture exactly how it's going to end. Because scripture does. Scripture tells us about the beginning and scripture tells us about the end. And this spans, if you will, all of that human history all the way to the setting up and the arrival of the full arrival of the kingdom of God. Let me see if I can just give you a theme, and I could go longer here, but I won't. You say, what is the theme of this chapter? Look in chapter 7. I'm just giving you one verse. And the kingdom, 
There's the theme. And the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions will serve and obey him. The theme is the kingdom of God. And in this chapter, God's going to destroy the Antichrist and give to his son an everlasting kingdom for the saints. You say, well, why did Daniel write this? That's very important, okay? Why did he write this? He wrote for this reason, to encourage the exiled Jews, okay, in this dark hour with a message of hope. That's at least why it rolled off his pen. We call that the author's intent. He wrote to these people that were right at the end of the 70-year exile who had maybe lost hope, and he wrote this message of hope. Now, what I'm going to do in three, three weeks, okay, I think, is I want to show you three assurances of God's sovereignty over the nations and the coming kingdom of Christ that it might inspire, okay, hope rather than fear. Say, well, you're wanting, no, I'm saying that's where the text is going. The text doesn't want you to be intimidated. The text doesn't want you walking around in fear. In fact, the scripture gives us every reason to hope as we think about the future. And this is not fluffy theology here. He's writing to a people who had suffered greatly and still are under exile. So three assurance. Let me unroll them quickly to you. It's the revealing first assurance of his prophetic will over all human kingdoms of the world. That's one through eight. Second assurance of God's sovereignty is the revealing of God as judge over the final history of the world. And then the third assurance, the third week, the revealing of God's power and the final tribulation over the Antichrist. He will deal with that person extensively here. So let's dive in, okay? Let's look at the first assurance of God's sovereignty, the revealing of God's prophetic will over all human kingdoms of the world. Here it is. He's going to tell you what's going to happen. Let's pick up the text in verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now you can see there that the vision is in the first year of Belshazzar. So it's 50 years roughly after Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Daniel is an older man here, but it's the first year as Belshazzar came in after Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2, 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Obviously, by this time, Nebuchadnezzar had died. Belshazzar is the king, 
And it refers, if you look again in verse 1, it's interesting. He saw a dream and visions uh, referring to what he saw. The dream refers to his sleep, if you will. The visions are what he saw while he was dreaming. Now, there's a number of points here that this just moves almost like a narrative because he keeps mentioning this idea of what he looked, how he looked, and how he saw. Look at verse 2. He said, I saw in my vision by night. Look at verse 4. The first was like a lion and it had wings, had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked. Look at verse 6. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leper. Verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, and on he goes. So this is very, very descriptive. You say, what did he do with this dream? Well, it says in verse 1 that he wrote it down. Are you not thankful? In other words, he wrote it. You're reading God's word. You're reading the mind and the heart and the very breath of God revealed to Daniel in a dream and visions. And he looked and he saw. And so he wrote a record of this. Grace Church of the Valley, you do not need to fear the future. He's going to tell you exactly where it's going. Okay? Now, I want you to note something here. And we're just thinking where we've been. In Daniel's dream and visions, there is, um, I, I want you to understand, it's a little different. Because in chapter 2 and 4, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, you remember, both in 2 and 4, were interpreted by Daniel. But as I just read, and we will see in 7 and 8, these are Daniel's visions. These are Daniel's interpretation. And it was interpreted for him, I mentioned, in verse 15 by the angel. So he may have been the greatest administrator the world has ever known, but we are dealing with here a major prophet. And he's saying, this is what I saw, and this is as I looked, this comes to Daniel. Now in this dream, it says in the text there, there's a great sea. Just picture this. And beloved, this is what we call apocalyptic literature. It's very expressive. There are symbols in it. I mean, this is a ghastly picture of these four beasts that are given far greater description in chapter 7 than in, verse, than in chapter 2. But it's called apocalyptic. And so in this dream vision, there's a great sea. And imagine this great sea being tossed, if you will, by four great winds. So he sees this great sea. There are four, four, one, two, three, four seas in the Bible. There is the Galilean Sea. There is the Red Sea. There is the Dead Sea. And this is the, and, and the Mediterranean Sea. I was on that a few weeks back, right? And the winds, it says here in the text, are stirring up the great sea. Well, which one is the great sea? Well, that's the Mediterranean Sea. 
You say, well, why would I say that? Because no time all over the word of God, the Mediterranean Sea is called the Great Sea. It's, it says it such in Numbers 34, Joshua 1, Ezekiel 47 and 48. So Daniel's vision is at the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. Now, in the scripture, the Mediterranean Sea also symbolically refers to the sea. And what I mean by that is the sea of humanity. It refers, if you will, to the nations of the world. I'll give you one scripture because we're gonna let scripture interpret scripture. Revelation 17, 15, the angel said, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are, here it is, people and multitudes and nations and languages. So Archer, the fabulous theologian, said that the sea is symbolic of polluted, turbulent humanity. Driver described the sea as the agitated world of the nations. So here is this picture of the sea, and it's being tossed, you know, just turbulent. You say, by what? Well, well, look, it says there, by the four winds of heaven, okay? The four winds speak of the directions of the earth. In other words, he's in this dream and in this vision and there's four great seas, but he's on the great sea and there's these four winds that are blowing and agitating and turbulent, if you will, and the winds are coming from everywhere. It would be like what we might think in our mind, like a tsunami. But it's interesting, okay? In Revelation 7, 1, the winds are controlled by the angels. They're being controlled. In fact, the winds, at least in 7.1, were being held back by the angels. But in other texts, the angels are commanded to release the winds on the earth so that in Revelation 9, one-third of mankind will be destroyed by war. The picture that Daniel wants you to get here is the nations, and you would say, yes, they are, are in chaos. They're just being tossed and driven, if you will. And they are the four winds of God's judgment bursting forth upon the sea of humanity. And these winds, if you will, are being released um, from all four points of the compass upon the ungodly nations of the world. You say, well, what happened? Look at verse three. He said, and he said, what? Picture this. Four great beasts came up out of the sea and they're different from one another. So here, you say, what's taking place? We should understand this, okay? Four great beasts are coming up out of the sea. Daniel is describing four great beasts that represent four kingdoms, okay? Four beasts representing four kingdoms. You say, well, how do we know it's that? 
Thanks for asking. Look at Daniel 7 in verse 17. Scripture is going to interpret Scripture. These four great beasts are four, what? Kings that shall arise out of the earth. Now, you remember here that in Daniel 2, remember the huge statue uh, there? It consisted of four metals. And those four metals were representing four kingdoms. So Daniel's vision here has four beasts representing the four kingdoms. And I just want you to know, these are the same four kingdoms as you will see. So the vision of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, depict four human kingdoms that all precede, listen, the coming kingdom of God. Now know what he says here. Look again at verse 3. He says all the beasts were different from one another. Now as we read, and we'll come back to this, there's a lion in verse 4, but it's mutant. Not teenage mutant, ten, you know, ninja shoulders. This is a lion and it's mutant because it comes with eagles wings on it. Then there's a bear in verse 5 and it's raised up on one side. Then there's a leopard and then the leopard has four wings in verse 6 and then it has four heads and then there is a hideous fourth beast in verse 7. So you got a lion, a bear, it's apocalyptic, a leopard. And then the last one is a hideous beast. So you got four winds coming, these winds coming from all corners, coming out of the great sea, out of the great sea, it's ghastly, come these four beasts, four nations are arising out of the sea. Now, I don't, this is not... To beyond our thinking, because in the ancient world, animals were used as symbols of kingdoms, even as they are today. And so each of these beasts represent a chronology of kingdoms that were presented in Daniel 2, and they will be presented in Daniel 7. Now, it says back in 17 that four great beasts are four kings who shall arise. Say, is it very hard to understand? No, I don't think so. The head of gold was who? Babylon. In the second piece of that statue, there was arms uh, and the chest of silver that represented Medo-Persia. I'll show you that, okay? And that is the bear. The third, at least in the statue, was a belly and thighs of bronze, and that was the empire, the kingdom of Greece, represented by the leopard. And then the fourth, the legs of iron, was who? It was Rome. It was a hideous beast. And I want to make the point here that Rome came in time, but there is something in the language here in Romans 7 that pushes this prophecy of a revived Roman empire all the way to the end of the world. 
So let's dive in just briefly, okay? I want you to know the first, and I'm still describing these, the first beast in God's prophecy is revealed, his prophecy is revealed over Babylon. And we know that Babylon is the lion. But look at the text. The first was like, and so he's using a metaphor, an analogy here, was like a lion, but, but here's the mutation, and had eagle's wings. I mean, obviously, the lion personifies strength. It personifies power. The lion is the king of the what? The beast. It's interesting, though, but it's got wings here. The eagle oftentimes is called the king of the birds, What I find fascinating here, Jeremiah, over a hundred years before Babylon even existed, depicted Babylon in his prophecy as a lion and an eagle. They were symbols of that country. So lest we're we're off on some far end, you know, game here of end time prophecy. No, 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 no. We're just describing what the Bible says. I want you to be able to read your Bible. We know in prophecy that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar referred to as a lion and an eagle. In fact, if you go into their archaeology, don't do it right now, on Wikipedia, they even had the lion with wings on its back symbolized in the strength of both that lion and eagle symbol. But I say to you in Jeremiah 4, 7, it's speaking, if you can go to that next slide, a lion has gone up from the thicket, a destroyer of the nations. Would you guys move to that next one, Steve? I want you to see this, or I'll just tell you if it doesn't come up. Jeremiah 4, 7 Maybe we don't have it. Write it down. It's a lion. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's a hundred years prior. In, In Jeremiah 49, 19, it says there, Behold, a lion coming up from the jungle. And then in Jeremiah 49, 22, One shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle. So we know this, and I think Daniel obviously knew this. He interpreted part of that dream earlier. He knew this facet of it, but it's Babylon, okay? And I think lion and an eagle because Nebuchadnezzar swiftly conquered Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and then, of course, Israel. They took him into exile, But you'll note, look at verse 4. It says there, then, he's still looking. As I looked, its wings were plucked off. Now, what is that referring to? Well, I think we've already seen a picture of that. Would you go back to Daniel chapter 4 just for a moment? Do you remember when in Nebuchadnezzar's pride, it says in 4.16, his mind be changed from a, man's and let a beast 
mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. In other words, he went down and we exposited that onto all fours to the point where he was growing feathers and eating in the grass out on the, the lawn at some point. And so I think that picture, as I looked, its wings were plucked. I think he's referring to Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. In fact, look at chapter 4 and look specifically in verse 33. It says there that all the inhabitants... Well, go back to 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and ever praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is everlasting and everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. In fact, go back to verse 32. The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. But he was restored, wasn't he not? Was he not? It says in verse 36 at the end of the period, I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. So when you look at that, what do you mean the wings were plucked off? Go back to 7.4. It says there, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So who's this first beast? Well, it's a lion has eagle's wings. It's Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel knew that. But there's a second beast that arose. Look at chapter 7 in verse 5. He said, and behold, another beast. And, and all, there's more of this to come in Daniel. There's a second one. This is like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three, three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Here is a second beast, like a bear. This is God's prophecy that is revealed over the Medo-Persian Empire. You remember at the end of chapter 5... Medo-Persia came in in one swift night on October 12th and overthrew Babylon. We saw that in five. Medo-Persian kingdom was like a bear. And beloved, when bears are mentioned in the Bible, I think it's 13 times, they are cast into the context of ferocious violence. Here, Babylon was a lion and eagle with swiftness and power. Medo-Persian was a beast like a bear and it was strong. Now it says in verse 5 that this bear was, if you can picture this, raised up on one side. And I think exactly what that meant was that the Medo-Persian kingdom was one, but the dominant one was Persia. In fact, by the time you get to the end of the book of Daniel, the Medes are gone. 
and Persia, if you will, is the one that is dominating. Now look again in verse 5. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. What is that? Well, again, it's a bear, okay? And I think it's the conquest of Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt which the bear, the Medo-Persian kingdom, devoured and it continued to devour. Do you see? Look at the end of verse 5. It says, and it was told. Now, this is interesting. Now, I don't have time to go into this. All of these are divine passives. In other words, these kingdoms, you think they're active and they are active, but all the language in Daniel 7, I'll show you maybe in a couple weeks, are divine passives. It's God who lifted up Babylon. It's God who overthrew Babylon because that's what he prophesied. It's God who lifted up the Medes and the Persians. And here he told them to arise and eat. I mean, it's, it's amazing. They had, devour, they had the authority to devour nations like a greedy bear. But then there's a Third beast, look at it in verse six, and we know this to be true for us. And behold, another beast, I'm sorry, I'm in verse six, and as I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads and dominion, here it is again, was given to it. We know that to be God's prophecy revealed over the country of Greece, I was just there a few weeks back in a, in a place of Corfu. But here in history, Greece ruled at one point. Greece at one time was identified as a leopard, an animal that we would know for its speed. A leopard was swift. A, a leopard was, was cruel. But this leopard is a mutant leopard because look in verse 6. It said it had four wings of a bird on its back. I think that perfectly describes Greece. When Greece conquered after the Medo-Persian Empire, it did so with lightning speed. I mentioned this to you back in chapter 2. It was in such speed that it's identified as a leper because in 10 years, just 10 years, it conquered from Europe to Africa all the way to India. And you remember I told you this, that after Alexander the Great conquered all those kingdoms so quickly, what did he do? He wept because there was nothing else for him to do. He died, I mentioned to you, in a drunken stupor at the age of 32 or 33. I mentioned to you that he had conquered the known world, in, and we know this by history. And, but I don't want you to lose sight of this. Daniel said all of this a hundred years before it happened. Excuse me, less that. Jeremiah said it a hundred years. And he, Jeremiah's prophecy goes, so some of it gets closer. But this was all prophesied. And uh, Alexander the Great had nothing else to do. Say, so what else would you tell me about this? Well, look at the text. It's the text that's driving us. And the beast, it says in 7.6, had four heads. We've already established that the heads 
are kingdoms. And here are four generals who were, you look at the end of verse 6, 6, and dominion was given to it. After Alexander the Great died, they were given authority were these four heads after his death. Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysacomas, if you will, and Cassander. It's exactly what happened. He's, he's seeing a dream and a vision. He might have known Babylon. He's telling you about all the histories of the world. You say, well, what happened after Alexander the Great died? This is exactly what happened. Four heads, four generals, if you will. And, and it says there, divine passive again. Dominion was given to it. Babylon knew that you have been enthroned by God to take the people away. After they were done with 70 years, God brings in Medo-Persian. They ruled. After they thought they were so successful, Alexander the Great comes in and dominion is given to him. In fact, Feinberg, the scholar, said, there's no other explanation that can account for the fact that a 30,000-man army, that's in Greece, was able to conquer Persian armies of several hundreds of thousands. This is unrolling, just as it says. There's a lion, there's a bear, there's a leopard, but there's more. Look at verse 7. The text is pushing this way. And he gives more info here than all of them. And after this, 7-7, seven, seven, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, comma, and it had 10 horns. The fourth beast in God's prophecy of these nations that are arising is his prophecy that was revealed over Rome. And we saw that in the legs of iron, partly clay and brittle. But the fourth beast was terrifying. I mean, he possessed, if you will, iron teeth. This particular beast, if you will, crushed and devoured its enemies. This fourth beast is crucial. There's more said than any of the previous three. In fact, look at the text again in verse 7. It even says the fourth beast at the end of 7 was different from all the beasts that were before it. That's very interesting. In other words, it broke in pieces. It stamped what was left under its feet. It says in Daniel 2.40 that there shall be a fourth kingdom. Here's what the interpretation was. Strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces, shatters all things let, like iron that crushes. It shall break and it shall crush all these. Beloved, we know this looking back from history that the Roman legions raged across the known world and crushed them under what they called the iron boot, 
forcing regions in Asia and in Africa and in Europe to bow the knee to Caesar and to Rome. Now, what's interesting, did you catch this? There's no animal associated with the beast. And here's what Montgomery, the eminent scholar, said. He said, because it defies zoological categories. In other words, he couldn't describe it, Daniel, and what he saw. So hideous, so wicked, so evil, so powerful, so destructive. It's not a bear, it's not a lion, it's not a leopard. There's nothing said. But if I do want you to note, I don't think this will come up. I'll read it to you. Read it on your own. Revelation 13.2. Have you ever caught this at the end of the world? The beast, John talking. I don't, is it, is it there? This is a different one. It says, the beast that I saw, listen, just was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear and the mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it, the dragon gave his power uh, and his throne and great authority to it. So at least at the end of the world, as the Antichrist begins to emerge, Revelation 13.2 puts all of the previous three beasts inside this one. And then you'll note, look down at 7.7. It says there at the end, and it had 10 horns. Now you say, well, what are the 10 horns? It's again, mutant. It's not even an animal, but there's 10 kingdoms that are coming and they had 10 horns. Who and what is that? Well, the horns are like heads and they symbolize kings and kingdoms. In fact, if you look in Daniel 7, verse 24, where it says there, as, as for the 10 horns out of the kingdom, out of this kingdom, 10 kings. So we're just interpreting scripture with scripture shall arise and another in 24 shall arise after them and he shall be different from the former ones and it says he shall put down three kings. Okay? Now, who are these 10 horns? There's ink spilled here that the 10 kings, some would say, is the Syrian takeover of the Seleucid Empire. However, we can't find 10 different rulers at that time in history. Others see this, these 10 horns, as a break off of the Roman Empire and the establishment of the papal power. But again, there's no history there. It's best to see these 10 horns as a time still yet in the future of what I could call a revived Roman Empire with 10 kings that will come together just prior to the Lord's second coming. So why do you say that? Well, look again at chapter seven and look at verse eight. And I considered the horns. In other words, it's, he's watching. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. So here, another horn arises. It's a, it's a little one and he takes down three kings. 
look at verse 8, at the end of verse 8. In this horn, watch this, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now you can just note there, and I'm just reading the Bible to you, the eyes in comparison are not talking about the other three beasts. He's talking about a human being here. And this human being has eyes. And in the scripture, Zechariah 3, 4, Revelation 4, eyes, 4, 5, the eyes are symbolic of intelligence, symbolic of insights. And then you'll note in verse 8, this beast, this person, has a mouth speaking great things. It's kind of frightening. You say, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, just for a second. Look at verse 11, same chapter. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Look down in verse 20. And about 10 horns were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which the three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke of great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Look at verse 25, okay? And as it says there, he shall speak, we're still talking about the little horn, words against the most high and he shall wear out the saints of the most high. Daniel predicts in a revived Roman Empire. We don't believe all of that took place in Rome. That there will arise at the end of the age a little horn. Don't think little without power. Think little, if you will, but brilliant. And out of his mouth will come arrogance, speaking great things. He will conquer three kingdoms and he will gain control over the whole world. That's Daniel 7, 24. The angel's interpretation places the little horn in the last days, just before the final judgment and the arrival of the everlasting kingdom of God. Who is the little horn? He is none other than the most infamous person in all of human history. It is the Antichrist. Daniel is telling you exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be this kingdom, this kingdom, this kingdom, a fourth kingdom. But after the fourth kingdom, the language, it's pushing itself not to a time in our history, but a time to our future. I mean, this is interesting because some people say that all prophecy has already been fulfilled. Not reading Daniel 7. Stay with me and, and watch that. It's the Antichrist in Revelation 13, 5 and 6. It even speaks of the future Antichrist that the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half 
years. It opened its mouth, Revelation 13, 6, to utter blasphemies, blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name. Daniel predicted in the last days there's a powerful kingdom made up of a confederation of kingdoms that will rise out of the ashes of the old Roman Empire through the power of the Antichrist and he will rule the whole earth. So listen, if you think we're in a battle here, we haven't seen anything like this. It is so hideous that there's no animal given. You say, well, pastor, is, I should be discouraged. No, you should not be discouraged. Because look at Daniel 7, 9. He's going to shift from the earth to heaven. And as I looked, thrones were placed. We sang that today. And the ancient of days, the eternal one, God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire and a stream of fire, verse 10, issued and came out from before him. A thousand, it says a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. It's the angels. And the court set in judgment and the books were opened and I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking and as I looked the beast was what killed and its body destroyed and it was given over to be burned with fire you say well well what will happen then look at 713 then I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man. He's referring to the second coming. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him Christ was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Are we there yet? No, not yet. Look at verse 14, that all the peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. There's the future. Can you say amen? Look over at 726, but the court sat the end. I mean, this is a horrible beast, but at the end, in the court uh, shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away. This is not like all is gone. He will be removed. His dominion, it will be God taking his dominion away to be destroyed, verse 26, at, to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and dominions shall serve and obey him. I can't wait for that day. Listen, Daniel's goal was not to satisfy, satisfy people's curiosity in the 21st century about end times. God's people, as he wrote, were suffering in exile. They were potentially losing hope. And Daniel's goal, goal was to assure God's people in exile and you as well at GCV that our God is in sovereign control of all kingdoms. And in the end, we win, right? We win. 
But this is the picture. This is what's being painted. And of course, part of that is what's going to happen in the tribulation. And you've got to come back for Daniel 9. Because I don't think we're going to be in that. God at the end will give to the Son of Man an everlasting kingdom. And the saints will share that with the God Most High. Listen, this is, it's hard news, but... I'm encouraged. He's in total control over all history. He will prevail over every kingdom, every ruler, every government, every political leader. The local and the international scene is chaotic, yes. But all history finds its meaning, if you will, in relation to the second coming and his kingdom that is ruled by Jesus Christ. Listen, if God was able to deliver the, Daniel from the lion's den, if he was able to deliver the three friends from the fiery furnace, then we can trust God also to exactly predict the future of the world. And here is your comfort. Here is your hope. Here is your future. God will be victorious over every evil power and every ruler. We don't just keep going on and on. It's really hard for me. I don't mean to throw this out at the end. Post-millennialism says it's gonna get better and better and better and we usher in the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's post-mill. He comes back at the end of a thousand years. When I'm reading Daniel 7, I'm reading about beast and then a fourth empire who's crushing, who's maneuvering until God shuts him down and throws him away into the lake of fire forever and ever. Listen, let me say this to you. (laughs) Last statement, in the midst of a culture that we live in that abuses power, that seeks to create fear, that seeks to create intimidation is bound up in the scripture Hear the glorious coming of Jesus Christ where there doesn't need to be fear. We're gonna need to be resilient. We're gonna need to hold to our convictions, but he's coming. Do you know him this morning? Have you bowed your knee now? Because you will bow in the future. I pray that you'd bow your knee now and know the Lord Jesus Christ who's over control of all these things and the ancient of days will give him that kingdom in its fullness.